Hello, I'm John McAlevey, and welcome to the latest edition of the Quadcast, a podcast mainly aimed at folks who, like me, have had their lives affected by a spinal cord injury, but is really for anyone who just wants to be inspired. Think of the Quadcast as your 30 to 45 minute session of OT and PT for the soul. I hope everyone had a happy, safe, and socially distanced 4th of July holiday with their family and friends. Okay, show of hands, who missed us because we did not record an episode last week? Oh, that's not too many. I guess we will just have to try harder to get the word out. Remember, you can find the show from our website, which is www.quadcast.org. That, my friends, is where you'll learn more about me, the goal of this whole endeavor, and listen to past episodes. Think of it as one-stop shopping for the Quadcast. And now on to today's show, one I have been looking forward to for many years, in fact. For you repeat offenders here on the podcast, you'll know that this idea has been rumbling around in my pea brain for many years. And with today's guest, I think I have truly arrived. In my 52 years on God's green earth, I have had many, many doctors. Some that stuck me with needle after needle, some that made me turn my head and cough a little more than I thought was necessary, and some who rushed through visits as if they were double parked. I have also had my share of physicians who were, shall we say, a little big for their britches. You know, when they walked into the room, they just acted like they were smarter and better than me. These were the ones I affectionately dubbed as having the bedside manner of a bedpan. I think I can speak for my fellow SCI brethren when I say that a good doctor-patient relationship is crucial. You know when you have a good one, and even more so when you don't. So in preparing for today's show, I wanted to find a quote about doctors that underscored this and thought this was perfect. Quote, people pay the doctor for his trouble. For his kindness, they still remain in his debt. End quote. Boy, did I find that out firsthand. When I arrived at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation in 1992, I was 24 years old. Just four months earlier, I was in great shape, had some exciting pokers in the fire work-wise. Life was good. Then, in an instant, it was all gone, and I had no real sense of direction. I was a scared little boy. Please don't tell anyone that. I felt completely vulnerable and entirely need of something, or better yet, someone, to lead me out of this sudden abyss. Luckily, that someone came into my life, and how it happened is a rather funny story. Well, it was towards the end of my first day as I was admitted as an inpatient, a woman entered my room and announced that she was my doctor, that she was pleased to meet me, and that she was looking forward to getting started the next morning. She would accompany on my first day to therapy. What I forgot to tell you was that when she came into the room, her midsection led the way as she was quite visibly pregnant. She seemed lovely, and although I was nervous and apprehensive, I looked forward to getting to work with her. After a sleepless night in which aides came in every three hours to roll me from side to side so that I would not get bed sores, it was up and at him for that first day of workouts. As the curtain was still pulled for me to get dressed, I heard someone enter the room. When the curtain opened, there was a gentleman standing there. He said, good morning. The doctor you met yesterday gave birth to a healthy baby boy last night. My name is Dr. Kirschbloom, and I look forward to working with you. What I did not know at the time was just what that meant. Being a sports guy, I will break it down into these terms. Basically, it would be like having Babe Ruth or Henry Aaron tell me they were looking forward to working with me in the batting cages. I had hit the Dr. Lottery jackpot. 
If I were to list all of his accolades, accomplishments, and degrees, there would be no time to actually speak with the man, but here are a few of the highlights. Dr. Kirschblum currently serves as Senior Medical Officer of Kessler's West Orange Campus, as well as the Director of the Spinal Cord Injury Program. He is the Co-Project Director of the Northern New Jersey Model Spinal Cord Injury System, is a Professor and Chair of the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School, and serves as the Program Director for the Spinal Cord Injury Medicine Fellowship Program. He has written more than 160 articles and completed over 50 book chapters. As if that wasn't enough, he has delivered more than 500 lectures nationally and internationally, is a past president of the Academy of Spinal Cord Injury Professionals, and sits on many advisory boards and foundations for spinal cord injury research. I know him also as smart, kind, compassionate, funny, and amazingly humble. As my listeners know by now, I like to give my episodes a title, and with all due respect to Hollywood and ABC television in particular, I am going to borrow this week's from one of their medical dramas. When we come back from this short commercial break, we will speak with Dr. Stephen Kirschblum, The Good Doctor. Hi everyone, I'm Matt Laughlin, the radio play-by-play announcer for the New Jersey Devils. If you like what you're hearing from John McAlevey on today's show, then you'll want to check out more Sports Now's podcast. You know, John's a huge sports fan, and each week he joins me and Steve Titchener for a spirited roundtable discussion on what's going on in sports on both sides of the Hudson. Our podcast can be heard at moresportsnow.com, but also on iTunes, Spotify, and iHeart. I hope you'll check us out. And welcome back to the show. I'd like to start by telling a funny story. I figured this would be fun. When I first left Kessler as an as a newly injured spinal cord person, I made it home and and let's just say that my bowel program was not exactly defined. And so uh, I was backed up, I guess would be the best way that you could say it. So what I did is I made a quick phone call to Dr. Kirschblum's wonderful secretary, Rosa, and she got in touch with him and he put together a a uh, he called into my pharmacy a prescription for me and told me to call him immediately when I got home and read it was what was on there and so it was something called lactulose and I remember reading you the instructions they said to drink half of it and then wait a half an hour and drink the rest of it and do you remember then doctor what else you told me oh I don't you don't remember you said don't make any plans Yes. That was what it went down, and that was uh, that was one of the funny things. It's a story that I always say uh, uh, whenever I see you and you have students around you. But this is the aforementioned Dr. Kirschblum, who I highlighted in the beginning. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know you are a busy man, and uh, I appreciate your time. Oh, it is absolutely a pleasure to be here with you, uh, John, who I've always had such tremendous respect for. Excellent. So I figure we'll start this way. What I usually do with uh, with my guests is many of them are spinal cord injured folks. And what I ask them is to tell me a little bit about themselves before they had their accidents. Because as we know, these accidents don't define who we were and who we are. So why don't you tell us a little bit about maybe where you grew up and some of the things that you were interested in doing as a young man? Sure. Well, I grew up... Uh, Till I was 12 in Brooklyn, New York. You can probably tell that from my accent, although I've tried hard over the years to lose it. Huh. Uh, and then moved to a small town 
in uh, Rockland County called Suffern, New York. Uh, I think as a kid, the uh, most important thing to me was playing basketball. And then behind that was probably playing baseball and then playing tennis. So as you can tell, there was a real theme there that uh, involvement in sports was my major preoccupation. You were a sports guy, just like me. Yeah, I guess, you know, as young men, that was the thing we all wanted to do, get together with our buddies and play sports. At what age did you start thinking that maybe a life in medicine was the way you were going to go? Well, I wasn't as talented as John McLevy <laughs> was in sports. <laughs> so I realized at a uh, young age that uh, I would need to find something else. Um, but medicine really wasn't my uh, first real thought. I mean, I had thoughts of it at the beginning, uh, especially when I was in high school. But then when I looked at my grades, I realized that that may not be a real option for mm-hmm. me. And uh, so then people don't know that I was in, did different things. I uh, went to uh, college and then went to work in business and uh, was a teacher for a little while. And then I worked in a warehouse, uh, loaded trucks and learned how to fix coffee machines. <laughs> so that was the pre, pre-medical school days. Wow. I did not know any of those things, and I'm sure our listeners did not know any of them either. So let's just say you're a jack-of-all-trades. I, I, I was. Uh, I would say that that goes back quite a number of years. And really, I think what was amazing was that the boss that I had in the warehouse had uh, confidence in me. And he he was he asked me about other things I wanted to do in life, and I told him that I had thought about being a physician, and and uh, he said you do such a great job with machines, you should consider doing people, and uh, it was really it shows you how one person could make such a difference in someone else's life because I really rethought about that whole uh, what my future would be like, and and I certainly owe it to him uh, for giving me confidence and guidance in that area. That's amazing because that's you're you're t- leading me into one of my next questions is if you had somebody who was sort of a mentor for you that that uh you know gave you a push and it sounds like you found it in the warehouse. So I think that you know we all have many different mentors so that was that person in the warehouse was a, a great mentor and certainly uh family members of mine were great mentors my my father my grandfather was a very special individual and especially when I got into medicine, he, he helped me a great deal in, in deciding things that I wanted to look for to do in the future as well. Talk about medical school. Where did you first um, attend medical school? And, you know, what was the thinking there as to which avenue you were going to head in medicine? So I, I went to college here in uh, Teaneck, New Jersey. So uh, for those of you who are in New Jersey, I went to Fairleigh uh, Dickinson. Uh, and then uh, took the, the hiatus. I went to medical school in Chicago and really loved Chicago, except for the bitter cold and the wind uh, truly went right through me. I was <laughs> very thin, very thin in those days. And so, but I, I loved my days uh, in Chicago. And I think that when I was first going through medical school, uh, my thought was uh, surgery, going into uh, general surgery. Mm-hmm. Okay. How about at, at at what point does physiatry come across the the uh, windshield, and exactly what is that, and how you were drawn to it? So 
So physiatry is the field of physical medicine rehabilitation, uh, and it is caring for people with uh, disabilities, whether it be neurologic disabilities, physical disabilities, a whole host of different things, certainly spinal cord injury, uh, but including brain injury and strokes, amputees, and then different types of musculoskeletal injuries, including uh, types of sports medicine. So going through medical school early on, I really didn't know much about uh, physiatry, and it was really having a hard time deciding what I wanted to do. Uh, I mentioned before my grandfather was a great mentor to me, and I had spoken to him, and he, he the guidance he gave me was uh, the world may not need another general doctor who will care for certain things like, like cardiology and, and gastroenterology, not that there was anything negative about that, but he had recommended that if I really wanted to do something deal with people who otherwise aren't being helped. And when I uh, found myself just by happenstance at the Rehab Institute of Chicago, it opened my eyes to what physiatry was. And then I realized that this was really the calling. This was a, a, a population of people who, especially in the 1980s when I was in medical school, uh, this was even pre-American for Disability Act, there was not a lot of people helping uh, those with disabilities to try to be as independent as possible. And so that once I, I, I went in the doors and looked a little bit into it, uh, I realized that that truly was um, for me. That was the calling. And boy, we are lucky in that respect. I tell you, the fact that you chose that has been, uh, been a godsend for so many of us. Tell us, Dr. Kirschblum, about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. When did that remarkable place first come across your radar? So that's a, another very interesting story that most people don't know. You're going to hear things that, that people don't know. Who uh, I've now been here for 30 years. I came in 1990. Okay. Um, and the interesting part of the story was is that I had never really even applied for a position here. Uh, but the uh, a headhunter who I had spoken to said that he thought I would get along well with the person who was the medical director uh, of Kessler at the time. So he set up a meeting. And we met, and uh, he had offered me a position, and I declined. And uh, to his great uh, perseverance, uh, said, let's, let's do a do-over. I said, what do you mean a do-over? He said, no, we, we didn't do a good enough job, clearly, so let's have another another try. So let's do the interviews once again. <laughs> so I said, okay. And uh, other funny stories happened, but in the end, I decided that I would come. And the interesting part of this is, is that in 1989-1990, most people that came to Kessler did not stay. They, they they came for a year or two and then learned what they wanted to learn. It was a tremendous place to learn how to deal with so many different uh, patients that had such a large patient population and great teachers. So they would stay a year or two, learn what they needed to learn, and then go off and get uh, other other jobs. So I joke with people that uh, I'm not that smart. It's taken me 30 years to learn what most other people learned in a year or two. So I'm still here. Oh, gosh. You're still there. Started in 1990. Wow. Unbelievable. And you've right. certainly worked your way up the line there. Unbelievable. Now, doctor, these last few months have been truly bizarre for everyone. Uh, I know that I had not left my house really until I started doing therapy again last week in, you know, close to four months. So tell us 
how this coronavirus has not only affected the spinal cord injured community, but Kessler in general. So I think when starting with uh, people with uh, spinal cord injury, it's had a dramatic impact, like it has on the rest of the world and the population. But certainly people with spinal cord injury uh, feel that they may be more susceptible to the virus and the complications of it. So your experience of being home for four months is not unlike the experiences of many other people who try to be protected. Absolutely. Uh, and and I just and the good thing is, in terms of the experiences that we've seen so far, uh, people with spinal cord injury have not necessarily uh, been been affected more than the general population. So that while there is that original concern that people with spinal cord injury would be more susceptible and have more complications, thankfully we have not seen that as of yet. But it could be because the people are so protective, which is really a great idea. Mm-hmm. And I recommend, again, for anyone listening, that the importance of uh, if you're in a crowd of any sort to wear a mask, to always wash your hands and have the people working with you to wash their hands as well. Mm-hmm. In terms of Kessler, uh, you know, New Jersey was at the beginning of the pandemic certainly just number two in the country in new cases and new hospitalizations, and unfortunately, in terms of deaths behind New York, New York. Um, and so, while New Jersey has fallen now below California and Florida and other states, uh, it was really up there at the beginning, and this impacted everything around us, from uh, hospitals to the the patients. Uh, just going for elective surgeries to patients that we would be admitting to Kessler itself. Uh, thankfully, because people were not out, less people were driving, people weren't going to the beach, people weren't uh, working. So therefore, spinal cord injury, the incidence actually decreased. So we saw less of a amount of people that had spinal cord injury that were being admitted. But the hospital had to make changes to protect the patients, to protect the staff, uh, protect the community, and so we made those adjustments within the hospital, within our admission criteria, and even within the outpatient uh, arena. Just like you didn't want to come out, not you, but but patients didn't want to come out, we too didn't want patients to have to come out. So mm-hmm. we started doing telemedicine, doing follow-up visits, even the spinal cord unit. Um, we we arranged for peer education through tablets through uh, iPads so that people can still have virtual get-togethers even though they couldn't have physical ones. Mm-hmm. It really has, it, it's unbelievable how much it's affected everybody. And the fact that you were able to, um, you know, get your protocols down and keep make sure that everybody's safe, that was a great thing to do. And uh, I have to tell you that being back in therapy now is a good thing for me because being, you know, pretty much sedentary for all these months. It really took its toll on my body. And some of the folks that I'm in therapy with now are telling me the same thing. Is that sort of what you're hearing from um, folks that have been sort of locked down these last few months? Yes. I think that it's uh, whether you have a spinal cord injury or you don't have a spinal cord injury, uh, just the lack of activity, lack of exercise, just getting out and around really impacts so much. Uh, And you get deconditioned. And so the hope is is that uh, people can exercise as much as possible, as safely as possible, and with time, uh, be able to regain back to the status that they were at before. Well, that's that's what I'm hoping for. I, I 
hope and pray that uh, I know the girls are doing a great job with me down in the outpatient gym. Now let's take a little trip back in time, back to mid-November of 1992. Do you recall me winding up on your case log? I was I was in room 124, bed one. I don't even know if they have spinal cord folks in that. Do you do you sort of remember back in those days? So so I'm getting old, but not that old. Uh, so I do remember. And it's so funny because even though we have new buildings now, relatively new buildings, because remember that uh, 1992 goes back to even when uh, our what's considered an old building was a new building. But we built a new building in 2006 and then moved the spinal cord units into that new building. Uh, but you were on the uh, famed uh, West Wing, the spinal cord unit, and I do remember uh, those days. Yes. Uh, I, I remember a um, – well, I can't remember necessarily the first day. Right. Um, I, do, I do remember meeting uh, a remarkable individual. Oh, that, uh, yes. And, and to this day, it's really no different, truly, for anyone that knows you from back then to now, which is always seeing a person who is smiling – People always gravitate towards and around uh, someone like you who just makes them feel good about themselves. And I think that is a uh, truly unique quality that was there back even then. Well, I must say you have a a great recollection. I was going to say, and Timelessly Handsome was in there at some point, I think. it. uh, Ah. (laughs) No, but yeah, I do remember. You'll hear back when you listen to the podcast that I relayed the story of... Um, how you became my doctor. I was supposed to have Dr. Karsnick was my doctor at the time, and she was so pregnant. She came in that afternoon and told me, I'll be your doctor, and we'll get you ready for therapy. I'll be here in the morning. And then the morning rolled around, and you walked in and said, hi, I'm your doctor. And you said that she had, I guess, had the baby later on that evening. So um, uh, that is actually how it all went down. And so uh, all these years later, this August 19, it'll be 28 years, I'll be uh, celebrating, as well, they like to say, my anniversary. Fate. Yes, yes. But So it was, it was my luck that you got uh, placed on my service at yes, that time. Yes, exactly, uh, that's exactly it. And, you know, Doc, my situation, uh, central cord syndrome, I remember early on, and I don't know if I've even told you this, but somebody said to me, central cord syndrome, you are basically an upside down para, meaning your legs will work, but your arms won't work. First of all, have you ever heard that description before? And can you please tell our audience exactly what central central cord syndrome diagnosis means to a patient? So uh, absolutely. So central cord syndrome is a uh, type of spinal cord injury where the arms are more affected than the legs. And the reason why, uh, as you so term it, the upside down is because in the normal circumstances, the arms are always stronger than the legs in the spinal cord injury. So that if you have a uh, chest level injury, your legs may be paralyzed, but your arms are all fine. So the presumption usually is is that everything above the, the level of injury will be good and everything below will be weaker. But in central cord syndrome, the injury is part of the uh, neck, the cervical spinal cord, which is by the neck, where it affects the fibers, the nerves that go to the arms more than it does to the legs. More commonly seen in people that are a little bit older uh, because they have some degenerative changes and that those degenerative changes of the spine 
will impact different parts of the spinal cord than if there aren't. So it's more often seen in people that are older, but also seen in people that are, are young and, as you mentioned, handsome. <laughs> uh, although I still think that to this day you, you haven't lost that. Yes. Um, but it does. But it does affect usually the fingers the most, uh, then the hands, and then the arms, and then the legs are usually fairly strong. Yeah, because that seems to be, you know, the case with me. I I got my legs back sooner um, than obviously my arms. I still have a devil of a time. Um, doing anything. I like to tell people I can get up and walk wherever I want to. I just can't do anything when I get there. Um, but, you know, we're still a work in progress. I was doing uh, in therapy today with my OT, Alyssa Atanasio. I was doing um, picking up blocks and putting pegs and things. And sometimes I look around the room and think, my goodness, I'm 52 years old and I'm picking up blocks and putting pegs in. I'm thinking, oh my gosh. But you know, you have to look at the big picture. It was it was a lot worse uh, back in the day, so there have been some strides. You know, I remember back when uh, we'll reminisce a little bit, but when early on in your uh, after your injury, one of the really big goals was to try to train you to be able to get a job. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you recall that uh, your OTs who worked very hard with trying to get you to be able to pinch some different things and hold things that would allow you to go up to for a position that you had applied for uh, even before the, the injury. Yes, that was uh, that was uh, the whole ESPN thing. Yeah, I remember. ESPN, that's right. Because, you know, it was not the ESPN that we know of today, but it was just in Bristol, Connecticut. And if I, if I remember correctly, it was people like Dawn, yes. uh, Texas, who worked with you and, and who just so, they, they I think they wanted you to succeed perhaps even more than you did. And obviously that's not the case, but that's how dedicated they were to trying to help you, uh, you know, achieve your goals, uh, which were really our goals as well. Absolutely. Dawn and also Karen Cameron, who was the outpatient, she yeah. actually took a ride. Karen and I went up to Bristol one time and we met up with uh, with some of the folks up there. So there's no doubt about that, that they were, they were huge uh, influences on me. And, you know, when people hear about spinal cord injuries, they always want to know, you know, is so-and-so going to walk? Is he going to get a chance to walk again? Will he ever walk again? Nobody ever really thinks, okay, will, will the person and be able to feed themselves, or will they be able right. to dress themselves and bathe themselves? But those are major concerns, don't you think? It is, and part of it is, is that just people aren't aware. Uh, because as as I mentioned, most people that when they think of someone having a spinal cord injury, it's their legs not working. So if they see that the legs are working, they presume that everything else above is. Uh, I remember you, you, you talking about how you can walk into a restaurant, but then but then what? Yeah. Uh, and I think that it's uh, always uh, people just don't fully understand what uh, the deficits may be mm-hmm. and how a person's impacted by their injury as well. Yeah. You know, speaking of walking into a restaurant, one of the first things I did when I was discharged is my friends took me out to dinner. So we went to the office and summit. This is a funny story. So here I come with not only my wallet, but I had my little bag of tricks. I had my Dyson and my plate guard. Okay. So right. we ordered dinner at, uh, at uh, the office. And of course I was old enough. I could have an adult beverage. I had a bottle of beer uh, or a glass of beer and I had my fork and uh, you know, everybody's sort of looking around like what's going on with this guy here. So the, the plate at the office was a little larger than the plate that I had been using at Kessler. So when I pushed my fork, uh, the food up against the plate guard, it 
went flying off like like a boomerang went across the table, spilled oh, the God. beer, and everything went flying. So that was a uh, that was a crazy thing. But um, yeah, one of the one of the hazards of bringing your plate guard with you out to uh, to a restaurant. Hey, one thing I wanted to speak with you about, I know that you're very big uh, with this, is how fulfilling is the writing that you do and the lecturing? Because I know that you are very active on that circuit. And uh, do you have anything in the works right now? Uh, so I do love to write. Um, the the I've written a number of textbooks on spinal cord medicine, and, and I, I, I'm thrilled that, that people... Uh, use that to learn about the field, and I, I wrote a children's book uh, on spinal cord injury. So hopefully that that has helped. And uh, I do speak a, a lot of public speaking. Although I'll let you know that I'm, I get very nervous before every speech. Mm. That uh, I just I have tremendous nerves. I have to like sort of hide beforehand, uh, and that gets me uh, at least gives me the ability to uh, get up there in front of the audience. So I don't think that I, I, I can't say that I love doing it. Um, I don't dislike doing it. I just, uh, it takes a lot out of me because I'm so nervous before I ever I get up to speak. Yeah. I, f- I feel the same way. I remember, I forget who it was. Uh, my father told me there was a great athlete that before every game he would go in the bathroom and he would get sick. I think it may have been Bill Bradley. Yeah. Um, wow. But yeah, he would get so ner- And here was a guy who was such a star and such a great player. Uh, and, and he would get so nervous before every game. He would go in and uh, he would get sick. So yeah, I believe me, I get. The, I feel the same way when, uh, whenever I have to you know, get up and do something. I remember early on, I went out with the Think First crew that, um, that you have at Kessler sure. there. And I would go to the, the schools with Sandy DeLeon. And I remember yeah. the first time she, they said, okay, and John is going to come up to speak. Well, first of all, for me to walk up in front of the, the, the class, you know, my tone kicked in. So I was like, you know, the, the tin man walking up there and, you know, everybody's watching. And yeah, I got, uh, I got like, whoa, I had to, you know, sort of catch myself a little bit. But um, it, it's such, you have such a, a font of information that people want to hear from you. So it's a good thing that you are able to get out and do that for everybody. Well, thank you. Well, what, what people don't know is is that I'm a closet novelist. So I've written many, many novels and, and TV uh, TV episodes uh, for shows, but I don't. Uh, no one's ever seen them. <laughs> so uh, really, to, no. to, to the point to the point that one of my kids asked me for their uh, special birthday if I will share one of my books with them. And they're hidden. My wife's never seen them. And uh, so one one day when I retire, then I'll I'll pull those out. That's amazing! Wow, what sort of uh, is it? Uh, fiction, nonfiction? Is it is it medical stuff or is it just something completely no, different? No, no, completely different. Oh wow! Yeah, completely different. Good for you. Good for you. Well, we'll be on the have to be on the lookout for for those things down the road. How about Doc? What is the next big thing that you and your amazing colleagues are working towards on behalf of the spinal cord injured community? Is there something that is that beacon out in front that we're really trying to get to? Well, interesting how you use the term beacon out in front. I would say the beacon is out in back. So if you drive around the back of Kessler, you'll see a brand new building. Okay. Uh, that building is uh, for the Center for Spinal Stimulation. So Gail Forrest is uh, the director. I'm the co-director of that uh, 
center where we're looking at a lot of uh, electrical stimulation, transcutaneous stimulation. We're looking at uh, epidural stimulation to try to impact people with uh, spinal cord injury. So I'm really excited about that. But there's a lot of other really exciting things taking place in spinal cord injury, including things like uh, intermittent hypoxia, which is uh, cutting uh, the amount of oxygen that one breathes for a very short period of time to try to enhance neurologic recovery, uh, robotic walking, robotics for upper extremity. So there's a lot of really exciting things that are, I wouldn't only say on the horizon, that they're here right now, that we're starting research projects. We're, I should say, we starting because now that COVID is, I, I can't say it's over, but what I will say is, is that we're slowly starting our projects up again mm-hmm. and starting new projects on these areas. And, and we hope that they will make a difference for people with acute but also chronic injuries. No doubt. No doubt. And I know, doctor, you spend hours and hours and hours at Kessler. You're there all the time. And sometimes, you know, I can even send you an email later on and you'll respond to it. So I know you spend a lot of time away from your family, but I know you you just spoke about them. You know, if you wanted to tell us a little bit about your family that that, you know, often loses you because you're you're dealing with your spinal cord injured family a lot of the time. So it's a, uh, I do uh, put in a lot of effort and time at work, but I hopefully uh, put as much time, I can't say as much time, but certainly the quality time with my family as well. So I, I certainly have loved my family. I'm lucky that my mother is still alive. Uh, I've been married. This is, we're now in our 37th year. So that's really exciting. And uh, I have three wonderful children and uh, three grandchildren. So they are a, since I can't play sports uh, anymore, mm-hmm. and certainly there's no sports on television these days anyway, but but even forgetting about that, I really spend my uh, free time uh, with with the family and watching them grow and, and being a part of, of that exciting world as well. Well, that, I wanted to get that out there because I know uh, being one of the folks that has pulled you away from uh, your great family many times over the years, uh, that you would get a chance to uh, to salute them today and tell us a little bit about them was uh, was my pleasure also. And listen, I know that you're a very busy man. I want to uh, to say that you've been an amazing advocate for me and an influence on me over the years. And you were at the top of my list of guests that I wanted to to have in this forum that I'm hopefully going to continue to get off the ground. I wanted to let you know that your presence here truly gives us some relevance and legitimacy. And um, I want to thank you for joining me today, for being my doctor and right-hand man for all these years, but most importantly, for being my trusted friend. Well, well, thank you so much. I want to end with one story that comes to mind, okay. which is just to show, me, show, you the, show the audience the epitome of who you are. Uh, after you came back, from the initial trial, trial and then tried to get you involved in things, you had a uh, sort of like this internship with New Jersey Nets. And the job they gave you was, I don't know if you remember, it was, you came back and told me that it was stuffing envelopes. <laughs> and I'm, I'm in, I, hopefully it, you couldn't see it on my face, but I was so, so sorry, so frustrated that the one job they would give you was something that needed your hands. Right. And then your response your response was, No, Dr. Schwalm, are you kidding me? I was able to do ten of them. 
<laughs> and so the effort that you must have put in, the hard work that you did, and then not to see the negative, but to see the positive is truly one of those stories that keep me going. When I hear the negativity from others to know that they're sometimes looking at the positive of things and, and just trying to see how one could come out of it and do the best they can is what's really critical. So I, I appreciate all that you have done and taught me over the years. Oh, wow. I'm glad. That would be like letting the blind man do the air traffic controller, right? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, they put me in uh, stuff in envelopes. That does bring back memories, yes. As they say, I look forward to seeing you on campus sometime soon. You got it. Have a great day. Thank you, Dr. Bye-bye. Kirschbloom. And that will do it for another episode of the Quadcast. Special thanks to my mentor, the good doctor, Dr. Stephen Kirschbloom, for coming on. Next week's show is all about getting back to work. Landing a job as an able person is not an easy task. Following a spinal cord injury, it is that much harder. Joining me to help navigate this process will be Kessler's SCI Vocational Resource Facilitator, Adria Simone. Truth be told, Adria has helped me through this and given me the confidence to launch this very podcast that you are listening to, so don't miss our chat. And in two weeks' time, my friend Eric Legrand will be the featured guest. So yes, we have a lot going on here, and I hope you will be a part of it. Special shout-out to Chris Parapesco at Sound Lounge in New York City for mixing the show. Once again, I am John McAlevey, and I thank you for your time. I don't